0: Sing your song again Whatever may pass And whatever lies before me May be singing when the evening comes Bless the Lord, O my soul O my soul Worship his own of his own.
1: You may be seated. Inside the announcement sheet, you'll find uh, an outline that you can use as we go through this uh, this lesson this morning. You can make some notes, maybe some things you want to look at or reference or pray over in the coming week. So I'd invite you to get that out. I'd also invite you to bow your head and let's join our hearts as we go to God in prayer at the beginning of this message. Father, we're so indebted to you. Our debt is so great that it takes your immense love for it to be forgiven, which creates in us this unfathomable debt of love that we, that we want to always work to, to fill as we find ourselves enriched and blessed by your grace and by your presence. We want to draw near to you, Father, in ways that we have never drawn near to you. We want to be close to you, Father, because of the way that you have loved us and that you call us to love you back and have given us, Father, have given us such great and meaningful gifts in this life. We pray that as we, we think about this passage that Sergio has read for us, that you will help us to open our eyes and to open our ears to it and to find in it, Father, a blessing. And this we ask with all of our heart in the name of Jesus and all the church said. I, I don't know if, if you can believe this. I'm having a hard time believing it myself, but we are at the end of the year. That's amazing. Christmas is right around the corner, and you can sort of sense as you go into stores and you watch television that all of the commercial retailers are starting to rev their engines a little bit. And I want to spend uh, the next couple of weeks getting us ready for the Christmas season. That's coming up in just, uh, just about two months. And the reason for that, it, it's all kind of based on something that I read out of a Goldman Sachs publication from last year. And basically what they were saying is that there are three gigantic stressors that hit most Americans during this time of year. The first one is this. 53% of Americans that were being polled said that the Christmas expenses, all the debt, all the buying, all the spending, all the worrying, credit card debt, all of that, that just completely stresses them out. You know, it's a part of American culture to kind of spend more than you make. And so 53% said, what really stresses me out are the finances. Number two, 23% said, family issues. Not only do we spend like crazy in the Christmas season, but it seems like we're related to a lot of crazy people. <laughs> and then 23% said, it's gaining weight. We eat like crazy during the holiday season. So I, I want to address the top two before we get to December, to keep Christmas as sort of the incarnate, the celebration of the incarnation. So, I'm going to spend some time today and spend some time talking about money uh, and spending and what the Bible has to say about that. And listen, I know that that's sort of the worst thing you come to church to listen to. But here's the thing Jesus talks about money all the time. And, and the Bible is full of teaching about how money should be viewed by disciples of Jesus of Nazareth. And on top of that, you know, shaming does not work. And so this is not about beating anybody up. This is about learning what it is to live as a disciple of Jesus with the material wealth and riches that we've been given. And then I want to spend the last two weeks of this month, again, all of this getting us ready for the Christmas season, I want to talk about worry, and I want to talk about stress and anxiety, and how we as disciples of Jesus of Nazareth approach these times and these, these circumstances and situations in which the stress levels get a little high. So again, recognizing that we don't like to talk about money, it's part of that private domain that we live in or that we, we try to guard and keep as, as personal and private as possible, we're uncomfortable talking about it, but surprisingly enough, the Bible says a lot of positive things about wealth. In verse 17, 1 Timothy chapter 6 in the text that Sergio just read talks about enjoying material wealth and, and riches that we have things that God has given us by His own hand. And if you read the Bible from Genesis all the way to the back to the maps, you encounter there are a lot of individuals that were made wealthy by God. People like Abraham, David, and Job. One of the first disciples made outside of the Middle East Uh, was a lady by the name of Lydia from Thyatira who was living maybe on a business trip, but maybe was living in Philippi when Paul met her on one of his missionary journeys. So when it comes to money, although the Bible says a lot of positive things, what is it about money that is the problem? What is the problem? The problem is this. It's up here on the screen, and it's something that we all face, and that is human love can be turned and it can be twisted. Human love can be turned and twisted. Let me give you an example, Genesis chapter 3. When we read Genesis chapter 3, it's about the fall of man in the Garden of Eden, right? the eating of forbidden fruit. And at one level, the fall of man, the fall of creation, is about disobedience. Disobedience to a direct command by God. God said you can eat of all of the trees, only one tree you can't eat of, and that tree is the knowledge of, say it together, good and evil. So here's the thing. There is more going on in the garden than just disobedience, even though that is one way that you can talk about it. When God, in Genesis 1 and 2, it tells us that He created man and woman, He created them in the image of God, right? Which means, It means a lot of things to be made in the image of God, but it means one thing for our purposes in Genesis 3, and it means that we are made for relationship. In fact, when at the end of uh, Matthew chapter 22, you have this religious leader coming to Jesus and saying, you know, out of all the things that God has said, through Torah, through Moses, through the, the poets, through the prophets, what does it all boil down to? And what is it that Jesus says? The first dot. Relational, right? We're to love. Let's wake up. <laughs> we love God. We are made to be in relationship with God. We are made relationally. And then he says something, and that's the second dot. Not only do we love God without our heart, soul, mind, and strength, but we also love our neighbor. We love people. And so when we get to the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3, yes, they did fail to obey God, but it was a result of their love being turned and their love being twisted away from God and pointed towards something else. They desired the fruit more than they desired God. Paul talks about this over in the New Testament, 2 Timothy. Timothy is in Crete. And he says, people will be lovers of themselves. They will be lovers of money. They will be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And so the storyline, I mean, if you just go to the Old Testament, the storyline of the Old Testament is the struggle between God's with a little g and God with a big G being the center of the human heart. And so here's the point, and if you get nothing else, if you walk away with nothing else, this is what I want you to have. It's this, the human heart functions best when it loves God above the rest. It's a poet, I, I'm a poet, you didn't know it, but my feet show it, they're long fellows. That's so lame. Why did I, that just hit me. (laughs) You, Hey, that's, (laughs) okay, you can boo me very quietly. (laughs) The human heart, but it is poetry, and it's easy to remember that, right? The human heart functions best when it loves God above the rest. We all have these uh, top ten lists, right? And they're the top ten most important things in life, so on and so forth. You know, for a disciple of Jesus of Nazareth, when we talk about a top ten list, At number 1 and going all the way to 10, it should say, God, 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 God. And by the time you get to 11, something else, not quite as important, but important to you. The human heart functions best when it loves God above the rest. And that's the reason we need to talk about money. And one of the reasons we specifically need to talk about money is that Paul describes money as a trap. Look again at verses 9 and 10. Those who want to get rich fall into into temptation and a what? Let's say it together. A trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money, not money, but the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and have pierced themselves with many griefs. So Paul says it's a temptation. He also describes it as a trap. What does it mean for money to be like a trap? Well, the reason is this. Traps are hard to spot. And that's why there's a warning that he's he's writing to Timothy. Paul says that those who want to get rich are near a trap. Now, the original word, the idea behind this word is a snare. A snare is a loop of wire that is hidden and and placed on what is a normal day-to-day path. And the idea of the snare being hidden and on a path that's day-to-day, a normal path, is that it is to catch an animal with something that it does not see until it's too late. That's a trap. That's a snare. And that's how Paul is describing to Timothy the trap that money is for people. And that's also another reason why Jesus says in Luke chapter 12, watch out, look, open your eyes, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed, for life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. And Jesus will even do some teaching about this in this cryptic statement in Matthew chapter 6 where he says, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? For no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and say it together, money. It seems that what Jesus is saying and what Paul is saying is that this issue of of inordinate desire for material things is difficult to see in your own heart it's difficult to see it's hard to see greed it's hard to see this inordinate love and desire for for money you know in all my years as a minister i've i've had people come in and and confess you know the rotten things about themselves the hard things about themselves the difficult things that they see in themselves and Ask for help, but I have never had anyone in nearly four decades of ministry to come into my office and say, You know, Preacher Mark, I want you to pray for me, and I I want us to spend some time counseling because I have a problem with greed. And here's the reason greed is an invisible idol, it's a trap, it's an invisible snare. And not only that, to take it one step further, one of the reasons we need to talk about it, and why God, uh, through uh, uh, through Paul, talks about it and Jesus teaches about it, is that it's about contentment as a human being, which goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. Contentment is the predicament. Notice the three ways that Paul describes the pursuit of material wealth. He says there are those that want to get rich, and the word that he uses there is one that describes the resolve to make, uh, money, the answer to all problems. Therefore, all of life is going to revolve around material wealth. That's verse 9. In verse 10, he says the love of money. That is, you, you want to, to love money, the inordinate desire for money to be at the core of your life. And then again in verse 10, eager for money, very bad translation in the NIV. The word literally means lusting for money. Now, when you think about all of the, the wanting and the loving and the eager for money, the lusting for money, there's got to be a motivation for that, right? What is the motivation that's behind the wanting, the loving, and the lusting for money? It's this. Money will make my life. Money is what is going to give me my identity. Money's what's going to give me security. Money's what's going to give me my protection. Money is going to make my life, and we do it in two different ways. One is to hoard, and that is, not, not, I'm not talking about saving, but I'm talking about hoarding in a way that, that um, you're, you're viewing money as the more I have of it, the more secure, the more contentment I'm going to have. Or it's going to be just the opposite of hoarding. It's going to be consuming. That I'm going to buy, 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 and that's going to give me identity through what I buy. Remember the old statement from the 1980s when the me generation was beginning? He who dies with the most toys wins. As a lie. Let's talk about hoarding just for a second. Again, it's not the same thing as saving. I'm I'm using the term hoarding in a rhetorical sense. It's in the sense of amassing money because of the fears that I face where I believe that money is going to be the only solution to those. And so I hoard money. Again, saving is a great thing. It's a responsible thing. It's a smart thing. But hoarding money as the ultimate safeguard against anything bad happening to the point that you feel anxiety and you feel stress in letting go of any of it is putting faith in the wrong place. Hoarding does not bring contentment. Just ask Ebenezer Scrooge. Nowhere in the Bible does it say, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear nothing because money is with me. Nowhere will you find that in the Bible because more money does not lead to contentment and security. Money can never replace the presence of God in your heart. Which brings us to consumerism. You remember when you were growing up, uh, I, I had these and you know, our kids had these. remember those, those puzzles that were made out of um, uh, some kind of pressed cardboard? And it was, it, when you looked at it, when it was put together, it was a picture of the United States and all the states had were cut out, and they all had a different color. And the only way that you could put this puzzle together is if you put the right piece in the right place. So if you had a piece missing that looked like Texas, you could stick California, you could stick Florida, you could stick New York, you could stick New Jersey, Kansas, into that place where Texas was supposed to go, and it would never fit. And one of the things you were learning is that Everything fits together in a certain way, but more than that is that there's only a certain piece that fits in that hole. Now, we say a lot around here that all of us as human beings have a God-shaped hole in our heart. That is a very real thing, a very real thing. The sense that a God-shaped hole in our heart creates is the sense that something is missing. And so we try to fill it with all kinds of things, which never works because the only thing that fits the God shaped hole in our heart is what? God. That's why consumerism never leads to contentment. And on top of that, you know, just beyond that, what does it, if it doesn't lead to commitment, what does it lead to? It leads to greater and greater desperation and frustration. Have you ever known anybody that was ever able to buy enough that it led to contentment? Or own enough that it led to contentment? Instead, what Paul talks about is, what we get instead is ruin and destruction and a soul pierced with grief. If Paul were writing today, he would call it impossible credit card debt. He would call it living paycheck to paycheck. He would call it bankruptcy. And that is no way to live. And let me say it to you this way. You can write it down on your outline. That something that turns to nothing, which is everything, something that turns to nothing will never take the place of the one who makes something out of nothing. Two simple solutions and we're done. Number one, decide that this is no way to live. That, that, that living with you know, money and material wealth and material things and made things at the core of our being, the center of our life, that that is no way to live. And one of the, the things that is great about, I, I think, our church family is that we have all kinds of ministries that can help you come out of, of, of you know, financial debt and, and anxiety and stress caused by finances. You can go to our website. You can contact Douglas Brown, one of our staff ministers, and he will help connect you to one of these ministries to help you. And let me encourage you to do it. We have tons of people who have gone through Financial Peace University and some of the other programs, and they have been blessed, and they're living in peace, and they're, and, and they're becoming more generous, which is what we're going to talk about next week. So find Douglas, go to the website, go to the app, call the church office, and we will connect you to one of those ministries. But then number two, always know that contentment is triggered when I realize my riches are with Christ and His promises and not in stuff. And not in stuff. Paul's instruction in in this passage is, is very simple. It's about pursuing Christ. It's pursuing Christ. Uh, you, you know, you know, so many people in our world today, they're, they're, they're pursuing happiness. They're looking for happiness. They're looking for something, and they're chasing, and they're chasing, and they're chasing, and they're chasing. And one of the things that we've all experienced in watching these people chase this elusive happiness is that they can chase all of their life and never find it. It's just that happiness, that contentment just seems to be so elusive. But what, what James, the brother of Jesus, tells us about God is that when you choose to pursue God... In James chapter 4, verse 8, when you pursue God, what is God going to do? He is going to pursue you. And so instead of you chasing God and chasing God and chasing God and chasing God and never being able to get to God and never, never being able to be forgiven by God or embraced by God or any of those things, what James says is when you chase God, He turns around and chases you right back. And instead of chasing all of your life, there is this gigantic collision between God and your life. And that's where the blessing is is in finding yourself in the, in the presence, in relationship with God, finding yourself in the middle of the treasure that is God. Notice the language that Paul uses in this text. He talks about pursuing righteousness and godliness and faith and love and endurance and gentleness in verse 11. In verse 12, he says, you've got to fight the good fight of faith. And in verse 12, he says, take hold of the eternal life. And in verse 17, putting our hope in God. That's where the contentment begins, is when you pursue Christ. And you begin not just to learn about Christ, but to live with Christ, and Christ in you, and you in Him. And all of those blessings that he talks about over and over and over again, about belonging to the kingdom of God, where you thrive and you flourish as a human being, because you are becoming the human being you were always made to be. Not finding any contentment or I shouldn't say any contentment, but the ultimate contentment and the source of our contentment in anything else but in Him. We will be restless until we find our rest in Him. There's there's something that you can pray this week if you want to do something really practical. It's Psalm 73, verse 28. Psalm 73, verse 28 says, The nearness of God. The nearness of God. The proximity of God where God is in my life, where I am with God in all of creation. The nearness of God, that is my good. You want to pray something this week? Psalm 73, verse 28. Say it with me. The nearness of God, that is my good. Say it again. The nearness of God, that is my good. One last time. The nearness of God, that is my good. Let's stand and sing.